Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Crossover Across Time podcast for our Friday episode for week 12 of the 2023-2024 NBA season. I'm your host, Karsten. Welcome to the show and or welcome back to the show. Um, both new listeners and previous listeners alike, we just want to appreciate uh, or express our appreciation uh, for your support on the show. Uh, it really means a lot. Um, of course, we're on all sorts of different streaming platforms now. We've expanded that reach within the, the last couple of weeks. Um, so wherever you're listening, again, we appreciate it. And uh, if you want to further support us, definitely check out our social media pages, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, just go ahead and search Crossover Across Time. You should hopefully be able to find us without too much problem. Uh, that being said, we have a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, as I was putting together the outline for today's show, <clears throat> Yesterday, I started to work on it. Originally, there wasn't nearly as much to talk about, um, but then there's been a lot of updates. Um, there's plenty of notes with the games from the last couple of nights, and uh, we'll we'll go ahead and waste no more time. We'll jump right into that. We'll start with uh, our five-on-five drill and our six men, which is basically our game summaries from the last couple of nights, as well as our uh, key news. So let's do that right now. All right, we've got three games from Wednesday night and two games from last night, Thursday night. And uh, with that, we're actually going to start with Wednesday night's uh, game between two of the teams with the worst records in the NBA. Uh, It doesn't seem like a game that you might want to focus on, but when you're talking about uh, the Pistons that have been a talking point throughout the season, I know we mentioned maybe holding off on, you know, continuing to belabor the point there but i mean they uh it has to be part of the conversation but then you know a game between them and the san antonio spurs who had uh have one of the greatest uh draft prospects in recent memory uh that's certainly going to be uh, a game worth paying attention to and the spurs you'd expect of those two teams they're still you know even though they're uh the two teams with the worst records in the nba uh, the Spurs have been the better team, double the wins now uh, compared to the Pistons. And uh, the Spurs, yeah, they win this game 130 to 108 in Detroit uh, with Victor Wembanyama having a particularly great game. Uh, before we get into the individual stats, let's talk about the, the flow of the game. And, and basically, uh, the Spurs controlled this one uh, mostly wire to wire. Uh, the Pistons had a brief lead in the first quarter. But then the Spurs quickly took a uh, 15 or 16 point lead uh, towards the end of the first quarter and uh, Pistons chipped away in the second. But after that, the Spurs uh, were just the better team all around, a little bit better on their boards, uh, you know, the assist category defensively, less turnovers, shot better from the floor, just every category you would expect uh, the Spurs were better than the Pistons and that's kind of what you'd expect tough loss for the Pistons, but uh, you know, I think they had, there's still some things to be encouraged with for one, for them to keep it within, you know, 20 ish points um, without Cade Cunningham. You know, I mean, he's been the focus point as far as he's been, not the problem he's been, you know, playing at a uh, raised level compared to the past couple of seasons. He's now in his third year, uh, 
taking closer steps to an all-star level of play. Um, we've seen productive play from other members of the team, and that continued. I mean, Jalen Duran is a name that we've talked about. 21 points and 12 rebounds for him in this game, 62% from the floor. Um, being able to provide some offense along with the rebounding side of things uh, is definitely valuable. They got 19 points each as well from both Bayan Bogdanovich and Jaden Ivey. That is also encouraging. Ivy in particular, two steals and two blocks. Very good stuff. Killian Hayes starting in place of Cunningham with 12 assists despite low scoring, only four points, um, but distributing the ball well. And then he got 15 off the bench from Alec Burks, who's had a nice last few weeks. And then Kevin Knox with 12 points. I mean, it's not a terrible night for Detroit, but again, with the Spurs, when Manyama had a historic night, he logged his first career triple-double. Congratulations to Webmanyama for achieving this. Um, and uh, he also had a few other notable records in that category, but a little more in depth. Uh, firstly, he was the second ever to record a triple-double in less than 22 minutes. He played uh, 21 minutes and two seconds in this game. The only other to do that, uh, to have a triple-double in less than 22 minutes, is Russell Westbrook. Um, he is the youngest ever to have a triple-double with zero turnovers. Uh, the next youngest, I think, was Andre Godala. And then he is the fifth youngest to log a triple-double ever. And now it's interesting that the other four ahead of him, Josh Giddy was the youngest, Lamella Ball was next youngest, and then Markel Fultz and Luka Doncic. All of these guys have been within the last... Uh, four or five years. I would have thought even like Oscar Robertson would have been on that type of a list. So um, that recency is interesting, but otherwise credit to Wemby. I mean, he only had 16 points, uh, but 12 rebounds, 10 assists. Some, he had some amazing full court passes. Um, he missed some threes. He didn't shoot that well, but still finding ways to impact the game. And he continues to showcase why, uh, that number one pick was such a lock and such a guarantee the minute the Spurs won the lottery and a phenomenal game for him. They got 17 points off the bench from Keldon Johnson, who was their leading scorer, eight of eight from the free throw line for Keldon Johnson. Um, interesting lineup for San Antonio in this game when Benyama now starting at center. So, so hand starting at forward Julian Champagne or Champagne starting at the other forward spot. Um, and then Trey Jones at guard with Kelton Johnson coming off the bench. Not sure why that decision was made. Uh, I don't believe I had heard any kind of injury situation for Kelton Johnson. So uh, curious situation, but still let them in scoring off the bench. Uh, Devin Vassell had 16 points in that starting lineup, uh, 15 points for Jeremy Sohan, 14 points for Doug McDermott off the bench, and then uh, three other guys with 11 points. Trey Jones with 11 and then Dominic Barlow and Chetty Osmond with 11 off the bench. Well-balanced scoring, well-spread scoring. And uh, that's where, you know, if San Antonio is going to pick up a handful more wins this season and up that winning percentage just a touch, I mean, they're winning 16% of their games. Maybe if they want to win more, like 20% of the games, 24% of their games, um, it's going to have to be from a well-balanced attack with Wemby still being the focus. So, um, credit to San Antonio and again to Wembenyama in particular for uh, continuing to set history with his uh, unique skill set, size, and style of play. Great job to the Spurs. And then our second game from Wednesday night is a big one. 
a matchup of the two best teams in their uh, in the two separate conferences, the top team in the West, the Minnesota Timberwolves, in Boston to face the top team of the East, the Boston Celtics, and arguably the top team in the NBA, uh, and a game that went to overtime that the Celtics ultimately uh, were able to escape with a win. Final score, 127 to 120 in overtime for the Celtics uh, to stay undefeated at home. They're now 18-0 at home, which is their best in franchise history, full stop. And you're talking about arguably the greatest franchise, uh, especially in terms of of winning, of dominant seasons, especially in the 50s and 60s. Um, You know, one of the great franchises in, in American sports. And, and certainly Celtics right there with the Lakers. Those are probably the two best teams, two best franchises in NBA history. But for them to set that kind of a record in that Celtics history is certainly saying something. It's very impressive for them to set that kind of a mark. And, uh, yeah, back and forth uh, overtime period, um, game-tying shots, game uh, shots to take the lead, traded back and forth. Uh, and then the Celtics had a nice run uh, in the final minutes of overtime, final uh, final bit of overtime to close out the victory. So you got to give them a lot of credit. And again, Minnesota, no slouch. Definitely worth considering. They were without Rudy Gobert and Mike Conley, and those are two key players in your Minnesota lineup. Uh, in their absence, they were led by uh, Anthony Edwards, 29 points, six rebounds, three assists. Uh, three of five from three-point range. They also got 25 points, 13 rebounds, six assists, and two steals from Carl Anthony Towns. Uh, so the two best players, um, probably anyways, uh, you know, Gobert maybe is debatable with Towns and, and Edwards as one of the best players, but uh, two of their best three players, regardless, uh, still in the lineup, and they played fairly well. Uh, outside of that, Nas Reed continued to impress off the bench. 19 points, 10 rebounds, 3 assists, 3 steals. He's kind of my pick at this point for you know, a guy I would like to see win 6th man of the year for his unique impact off the bench. Um, you know, A power forward or a center, defensively, rebounding, scoring, 3 of 7 from 3-point range in this game as well. Uh, he's just great. I love what Nas Reed does for the Timberwolves. Uh, they got 17 points, eight rebounds, five assists with a steal and a block as well for Kyle Anderson. Uh, and then Nikhil Alexander-Walker starting in a place of Mike Conley, 15 points, uh, one steal, one block as well, three of five from three-point range. Not a bad night for Minnesota, you know, and uh, they definitely uh, gave Boston a good game, but you're talking about a Boston team led by a guy in Jason Tatum who – has some doubters and has some off games, but when he has a game like this where he scores 45 points uh, on 50, 50, 90 from the floor, uh, that's what he can do, and that's why he gets his name in the top five, top ten in the MVP conversation in the last uh, few seasons. You know, he has this ability to take over a game, especially offensively. And then Jalen Brown, um, you talk about overqualified co-stars, 35 points, 11 rebounds, two steals and a block, 50-50, uh, 100 from the floor. Um, the two combined to go 26 of 27 from the free throw line, um, th- out shooting the uh, Timberwolves from the free throw line by themselves. Um, you know, maybe you have a gripe with that if you're Minnesota. Um, and then Drew Holiday with 12 points, the only other double-figure scorer for the Celtics, two steals and a block as well. Uh 
but Brown and Tatum carrying them in a game like this is certainly encouraging for Boston to see. You're talking about uh, a matchup that's a lot more um, a box office, perhaps, but certainly a bigger uh, litmus test for what they're, um, you know, can are they actually this good? Are they actually that potent? Uh, facing a top team in the West. So you got to give them a lot of credit for coming up with a win like this. And, um, you know, again, not a bad game for Minnesota, but Tatum and Brown combining for 80 uh, like that is, uh, that's hard to beat. So credit to Boston for coming up with that victory. And again, undefeated at home, 18-0 at home. Uh, We'll have to see if and when. Uh, You have to think probably more when, I don't believe any team has gone undefeated at home. The closest, of course, was a team we recently talked about, the 86 Celtics. We talked about them on Wednesday's show. Uh, went 40-1 and at home. I believe that's the closest, uh, at least in the 82-game era, the closest that anyone's come to going undefeated at home. But I guess if anyone's going to make a run at it, it's going to be another Celtics team. So we'll have to see, but for the moment, Big win for Boston. And uh, with that, we'll jump to the last game from Wednesday night. And uh, a blowout, a disappointment, and a uh, an alarm bell for the Golden State Warriors losing at home to the New Orleans Pelicans, who are playing well. But that being said, 141 to 105, your final score. Uh, not really much of a contest in this game. Um, from the first few minutes of this one, New Orleans had a 10-point lead, and they never really looked back. Uh, Golden State brought it close, uh, kind of going into halftime and beginning of the third quarter. But then Pelicans built back up a lead in the fourth quarter. You know, starters pulled. Game's kind of over at that point. Um, and it's definitely not a great sign for Golden State. Uh, and that's putting it lightly. Looking at the box score for the Warriors, um, they were led by Moses Moody actually off the bench. 21 points, 4 of 8 from 3. They got 19 from the rookie Trace Jackson Davis. He's been a bright spot for them. A steal and a block for him, 81% from the floor. Um, Then Steph Curry, 15 points, six assists and a steal. Uh, Three of eight from three, 30% overall from the floor. Definitely a tough night for for one of the greats in our game right now. Clay Thompson, 13 points. Uh, Jonathan Kaminga, 12 points rather. Thompson was three of seven from three-point range. Um, we will talk about Curry a little bit later in the show, but I, it just does, definitely does not feel right for the Warriors. And I'm also going to say I'm already in the early planning stage of um, a special edition of DEFCON Levels for um, our upcoming Monday podcast next week. I think teams like the Warriors, the Suns, the Lakers are at this point in the season as we're just about at the halfway point. Uh, we need to talk about them a little bit more in detail as far as the season so far and the season uh, going forward. Um, so we're definitely going to look at them more in detail. But interesting starting lineup, Pojemski starting instead of, you know, either Andrew Wiggins or uh, Draymond Green. Of course, Green still not back to um, a competition level as far as conditioning goes. Um, and that's a factor, you know, we'll certainly consider that. But for the Pelicans, again, they're playing great basketball and they didn't even have one guy who was lights out scoring. Valanchunas led them in scoring 21 points, nine rebounds, two steals and a block. He was two of three from three point range, which is nice to see. But they had seven players, actually eight players in double figures. Um, Zion Williamson, 19 points, 
seven assists, five boards. They got uh, 16 points from Trey Murphy the third off the bench, who also had six assists. They got 14 points from both CJ McCollum, as well as Jordan Hawkins, the rookie off the bench, who was four of five from three. Uh, McCollum also with eight assists, two steals on a block in this game. They got 13 points from Brandon Ingram, and then they got 12 from both Herb Jones, the starter, who also had two blocks and a steal, and then 12 off the bench from Najee Marshall. And, you know, we know that the Pelicans can be dangerous. We saw last season, you know, the first third or first half of the season where the Pelicans were one of the top two or three teams in the Western Conference, and they've started to make a run uh, here in the early stages of 2024 where they want to move up into that top three, top four, top five conversation in the West again. And I think they're certainly capable of doing that. Um, health is always the question. That was what impacted them last season. We hope that it doesn't impact them this season. Um, but when you can have a well-balanced attack like this, they've got defensive guys in, in Jones and, you know, stretch ability with Trey Murphy, CJ McCollum with the combo guard style play that I didn't really see coming uh, when he was in Portland, but it's worked out pretty well for New Orleans. You've got Zion, who is just a force of nature uh, physically out there. Ingram can ISO. Valanchunas is going to just be a steady inside presence. I just love the multitude of, of, play styles and there's a lot of dynamic lineup possibilities players do a lot of different things and this is without jose alvarado uh, he just didn't even play in the game and he can be one of the big x factors coming off the bench with his ability to play unconventional defense get steals and uh, just be an emotional leader so you really got to look out for new orleans especially after they have such an opposite start to what was in the conversation compared to their strength of schedule in January, you know, they've been killing it. So um, a big win for them. And this 36 point victory, this is the largest margin of victory in home loss in Steve Kerr's tenure. Again, that goes to that conversation that I think we'll go more in depth on in the future. As far as the Warriors, this season, a letdown um, comparing it to past seasons. But for the moment, look out for new Orleans. This is, you know, in some ways more a credit to them than, uh, you know, a true indictment of the Warriors, especially with Draymond still out. Um, that will be a talking point, but the Pelicans have been very good and you got to watch out for them. They're they're a hot team. Expect them to be in the conversation in our power rankings, uh, most likely uh, probably next week. But again, big win for them in this one. And let's jump to uh, last night's game, Thursday's games. And we're going to have uh, we're going to start with a, a flip of the script from when we talked about Boston's win in Minnesota, because last night, a back-to-back, they had to go to uh, Milwaukee to face the Bucks. their their next best competition in the East. And while the Bucks just ran away with it, 135 to 102, and the game wasn't even quite that close, um, a 33-point victory. And at one point, the Bucks led by 43. That was most of the uh, end of the second quarter and third quarter you know, the whole of the third quarter, the Bucks just dominated this game. Uh, they out-rebounded the Celtics by 23 rebounds. Uh, they had 12 more assists. They shot uh, nearly 20% better from the floor and about 17% better from the three-point line. Um, it, it's hard to be much more dominant, but we'll maybe get there in our next game. But um, 
big win for the Bucks in this. Um, and a lot of great stuff to see. First of all, talking about six-man candidates and and big man six-man candidates. How about Bobby Portis, a name that gets uh talked about uh, a lot over the last couple of years, and he should again this year. 28 points and 12 rebounds off the bench, including five of six shooting from the three-point range, 61% from the floor. That's a standout game, and he was maybe the best player for the Bucks in this, along with Giannis Antetokounmpo, 24 points, 12 rebounds, six assists, steal a block, uh, 76% from the floor. You know, I think Giannis maybe just a slightly better all-around game, but those two guys powering the Bucks to a victory inside, playing that power forward slash center type spot. And then around that, they had solid supporting play. Lillard with 21 points, four boards, four assists, uh, three of eight from three. They got 16 points from Malik Beasley, four of eight from three, and then uh, 15 points uh, with two blocks from Brooke Lopez, who made two of his four three-point attempts. And that's solid. That's without... Uh, a good game from Chris Middleton, five points for him with seven assists. Um, if they can get that Middleton game consistently and they have this type of solid all around game, this is the Bucks that we, you know, we know there's the potential for this, that they, after the Lillard trade could be real deadly. If all the pieces are, you know, up to their potential Middleton being the biggest question mark there. Again, the, the bench is a concern. Um, Connaughton has not been uh, a standout. He's played well in previous seasons. Uh, hasn't been super noteworthy this year. Andre Jackson Jr., the rookie, needs just more time. He He's a little bit more raw than you would like to see. Uh, Cameron Payne has gotten some run, and he is still uh, fairly effective when he gets those opportunities. Uh, Beauchamp, the, the sophomore, uh, inconsistent as well it's just the consistency of the bench more than anything um my comparing it to my concerns with denver um some of that is more you know rookies and sophomores and maybe some third year guys that really just haven't had opportunity and some of that is true with milwaukee as well but beauchamp um Cameron Payne, of course pat Connaughton, these guys have had more opportunities than a lot of the nuggets bench guys but um consistently producing and being reliable with key, you know, this, this kind of, you know, expectation of these around these many points, these many threes, these many rebounds, those types of things. It's just a little more inconsistent, not as reliable for Milwaukee. So that's maybe the bigger concern. Um, looking at things for Boston though, definitely a, a flip of the script as far as Tatum and Brown. Um, the Celtics were led in scoring by Peyton Pritchard, 21 points, uh, 46% from the floor. And even he was only two of nine from three point range. Um, 15 points for Sam Hauser off the bench as well. 13 points for O'Shea Brissett off the bench. Those three guys, the leading scorers all coming off the bench and Pritchard ended up playing 30 minutes in this game. Part of that because Boston didn't even bother to play, uh, most or all of their starters coming out of halftime because the margin was so great at that time. Um, that's definitely not a great look for them. Tatum, seven points and three assists. And again, it's a complete flip of the script. The previous game, he looks unstoppable. And this game, he looks, uh, well, very stoppable. You know, two of six from the floor, six attempts is 
quite low, missed his one three-point attempt, uh, three or four from the free throw line. And then Jalen Brown, 10 points, five of 14 from the floor, missed his only three, didn't get to the free throw line, four rebounds and three assists. And this is your concern for Boston, as great as they've been, the road uh, mark wins and losses has not been it's been above 500 but it hasn't been exciting and then you know which version of jason tatum and jalen brown are you getting and i hate to say that because more often than not we know they can be so great but then they have games like this and it's like well why why does that happen what's the missing piece there and so that's the concern for boston but you you know in my mind, you'd rather have that kind of a concern than multiple guys and a bench unit and having to go stretches of, of game time where you're worried about more of the lineup compared to, you know, a star player has an off night and you have a great supporting cast to make up for it. Because again, most nights they've got Porzingis, they've got Derek White, Drew Holiday, and now some of their bench guys emerging. Sam Hauser's been a bright spot. Peyton Pritchard with more opportunity as a backup guard can be very good. Um, and they have some guys that are hungry like Brissett and Lamar Stevens. I like Stevens as a rebounder and a defensive hustle guy. So I think it's a different issue, um, but definitely credit to Milwaukee for getting, uh, making the Celtics look this bad. I think that's a statement win for them after they've been getting underrated and for, you know, decent reason in terms of, them losing games they should be winning um and Giannis having to carry a lot of the load this is a big win for them and uh it props them for that uh and we'll go ahead and wrap things up with again a game that perhaps was a uh, a bigger domination the Oklahoma City Thunder won at home against the Portland Trailblazers not too big of a surprise but the margin 139 to 77 and uh that's a 62-point margin of victory, ladies and gentlemen. That is insane. Uh, of course, the Thunder out-rebounded the, the Trailblazers. The assists, 41-16 to 16 in favor of the Thunder. They had more turnovers, which is kind of surprising, but the, the Blazers, how about 27% from the floor for the Blazers, 22% from the three-point line compared to the Thunder, who shot 57% from the floor, 40% from the three the Blazers 62% from the free throw line, Oklahoma City 86% from the free throw line. Um, yeah, those are big reasons that you're going to end up with a blowout of this caliber. For the Trailblazers, they had two double-figure scores, uh, or double-digit scores, rather. Anthony Simons, 14 points. He was 4 of 8 from 3, by far their best 3-point shooter in this game. Um, and then 13 points from Scoot Henderson who was a spectacular minus 56 um, in this game. Uh, Scoot Henderson, one of nine from three-point range, four of 21 from the floor. Uh, Not a great game for the rookie. And uh, you look at the Thunder, six players in double figures, all five starters in double figures, five of those six, of course. Shea Alexander, 31 points, then 21 points from Jalen Williams. Uh, Santa Clara, Jalen Williams, that is 19 points for Chet Holmgren, 13 for Josh Giddy, and then 11 points for Lou Dort. They also got 11 off the bench from Trey Mann. Um, 
And we've seen crazier offensive outbursts from teams. You know, the Pacers have had uh, multiple games that have been higher scoring and, and more well-spread offensively. Um, but the Blazers' offensive struggles, uh, along with the Thunder having a, a very efficient night, uh, is just what leads to this kind of a, a crazy game. On the contrary, or the, the inverse of Scoot Henderson's plus minus, uh, Josh Giddy with a triple-double, 12 assists and 10 rebounds, was a plus 46 in this game. Uh, that's pretty... Uh, pretty impressive to have in the advanced stats category. Um, and there's not much more you can say than that. Uh, Holmgren only had four boards and three assists. You know, Jalen Williams had seven boards, two blocks. Uh, Lou Dort was a steal and a block. The stats for the Thunder just aren't even that crazy. That's the crazy part of the Blazers uh, losing by this much. And, we know the Blazers are not going to be a fantastic team this season. Um, but I think recently I had talked about, Hey, you know, they've got some, some players. Shaden sharp has been underrated on the season, even though again, he struggled in this game. Anthony Simons, the scoot Henderson, they've got some guards. They've got Jeremy Grant. Um, they have some interesting veterans. They have the rookie, Chris Murray, uh, Keegan Murray's twin, who I think uh, should be given more run and could, have some, you know, interesting opportunity and and could, could be a player, but um, this is definitely not a great showing of that potential um, and the possibilities for those players and that talent. Um, And yeah, just a a massive blowout. It was of course a big talking point um, and it was an ESPN um, notification. Um, this is the Thunder's franchise record for largest margin of victory. And I wanted to note, well, first of all, fifth largest in NBA history. So top five biggest blowouts in NBA history. That's pretty phenomenal. But it's worth noting on that list, you know what the largest margin of victory was? The Memphis Grizzlies beating the Oklahoma City Thunder in 2021 in Memphis, not very long ago. And Many of these same Thunder players were part of that game. And I think it's a great sign of, you know, the dark moments of a team that's struggling like the Thunder were just a few seasons ago. When you're in a rebuilding type mode, you're acquiring young talent and draft picks and clearing cap space, and you're doing all those types of things that we're now pretty accustomed to as far as the uh, the the steps it takes to start building uh, a younger winning team. But those moments and you have lose lost seasons and losses piling up and blowout losses, you know, if your team is managed well, like we know the Thunder are and a great general manager in Sam Presti, they can build it and suddenly, hey, you're on the reverse end of that you're blowing out teams by record margins. And uh, I think that's great for the Thunder to see, um, you know, they have a great fan base and they've had such great success since they've moved to Oklahoma city. It is a shame that Seattle doesn't have a team. If expansion is on the table, I definitely would hope that Seattle gets their team back, uh, gets the supersonics. They deserve to be in the NBA. Um, But 
Oklahoma City, I think, has proved to be uh, a valuable place for a team, and the Thunder have proved that you know that franchise has something to it. You know, the Thunder name means something. Uh, if going from the Durant and Westbrook days to um, Westbrook's triple double dominance and MVPs. Paul George joining in, and then now this team with SGA, who's an MVP type candidate. It's exciting stuff. The Thunder have been great in the NBA, but just a quick side note: we got to see the Supersonics back at some point. But I don't want that to, I don't want that to be hung up on the Thunder. You know, the this current Thunder uh, front office and players they had nothing to do. They weren't around for that. Uh, you know, Supersonics move really. So, uh, you know, that'll be separated. And again, hopefully it'll be uh, permanently separated if the Supersonics can become an expansion team. But again, that's besides the point. Credit to the Thunder for such an impressive win. And that's our five-on-five drill, the five games we wanted to focus on. Let's real quick run through the remaining games we didn't have a chance to go uh, more in detail on with our six-men segment. And that starts with uh, Wednesday, the Indiana Pacers winning at home against the Washington Wizards, 112-104. to um, Then the Sacramento Kings winning in Charlotte against the Hornets, 123-98. to uh, Sabonis with a double-double in that game. Uh, on Wednesday, the Oklahoma City Thunder beat the Miami Heat 128 to 120 in Miami, uh, overcoming a Bam out of bio double double. Uh, how about this one? The Atlanta Hawks won at home against the Philadelphia 76ers in overtime 139 to 132. Tyrese Maxey, 35 points, nine assists, eight rebounds. Jalen Johnson, a career high, uh, 16 rebounds and seven assists to go along with 25 points. Um, and there's a few notes here because this really could have been a game we talked about, but there was just a lot of other reasons to talk about those five games in particular. Um, this one, unfortunately, had to get cut. But just quick notes. Um, Atlanta was able to close it out with a 10-0 run in the final two minutes of overtime after Philadelphia's Tyrese Maxey had fouled out. Um, just pivotal you know, swing of things. Uh, shows how valuable Maxey has been to the to, uh, the 76ers this season. Uh, but credit to Atlanta. That's a big win for them in a season that's been um, a bit of a a rough season uh, in, in many ways. But Jalen Johnson's been a revelation, um, and that's a big win for them. In similar fashion, the Chicago Bulls won at home against the Houston Rockets in overtime, 124 to 119. And they had a similar run, 10-0 run in overtime that sealed the win. Uh, after the Rockets rallied from 16 down to force overtime in the first place. But credit to Chicago for, for holding strong to get the win. Zach Levine with a uh, a double-double in that game, points and rebounds. Uh, the Utah Jazz, got to definitely gloat about this, happy with this. Uh, they won at home against the Denver Nuggets on 90s night. Of course, they're celebrating their 50th season in the uh, the NBA. Uh, 124 to 111, your final score, Larry Markinen. Uh, 26 and 12 against Nikola Jokic's 27 and 11 close matchup of those two guys. Uh, but Clarkson with a great game, County George. I mean, all those guys playing well. Utah's nine and two in their last 11 games as a Utah and a Jazz fan. I'm super excited. Uh, they're playing Toronto tonight, of course, and I'm hoping they can get a win there and continue to move up the Western Conference standings. And finally, uh, the last game from Wednesday night, the LA Clippers won at home against the Toronto Raptors. 126 
to 120. Uh, Paul George leading the Clippers with 29 points. Then he moved to Thursday. Uh, the NBA Paris game this season was on Thursday. The Cleveland Cavaliers won as a designated home team in Paris against the Brooklyn Nets, 111 to 102. Donovan Mitchell had 45 points and 12 rebounds, scoring his jersey number in that game. Uh, that is a record for NBA games played in Paris, and that's the fourth straight win for Cleveland, a team that's had some rough uh, injury news and the loss of a, a veteran to retirement in Ricky Rubio, and now they've strung together some wins, uh, getting wins in the face of diversity. I like that for Cleveland, so a big win for them. Another game we definitely could have talked about, but it just didn't quite make the cut. The Dallas Mavericks won at home against the New York Knicks, a rematch of last year's game where Luka had the crazy 60-point, I think it was a triple-double or something. It, it, I I know it was a wild stat. I can't remember the specifics. I remember uh, the, the free-throw situation at the end. This is the, the matchup, first matchup, at least in Dallas, since that of the two teams. And it's actually Jalen Brunson's first game as a Nick back in Dallas. Last season, he was injured when the, the Knicks were in Dallas, but the, he finally made his return to, to play in Dallas in this game. So that was certainly a note. And uh, again, Mavericks win 128-124. Kyrie with 44 points and 10 assists for the Mavs, leading them in this one uh, with Luka out in this game. Um, I want to say it was more rest than anything. I don't believe I'd heard any kind of injury update uh, for Dallas. Hopefully, if there is an injury, it's not anything too severe. Uh, but yeah, for New York, first loss for them since acquiring OG on an OB. Uh, and it ends a five-game win streak since acquiring Ananobi. Um, worth noting, though, uh, Julius Randle and Jalen Brunson with at least 30 points in this game. Uh, that's the sixth time they've combined with 30 each in a game. That's the second most uh, for a duo in Knicks history. Uh, the first is Richie Guerin and Willie Knowles from the uh, late 50s, early 60s. They combined uh, with 30 points each 19 different times. Uh, underrated players in Knicks history for sure. Um, so we're, still some bright spots for New York, competitive against the top uh, Mavericks team. But that being said, the Knicks are still moving their way up record-wise. I mean, close in record to the Mavericks. Um, they are going to be in that top conversation. And finally, the Phoenix Suns won in Los Angeles against the Lakers, 127-109. to A rough game for L.A., that, a team that's, you know, been a talking point. The Lakers always are, but especially when they've been struggling, they've been a talking point for that. Uh, the Lakers kind of pulled their starters in the fourth quarter. Um, not a, a great look as far as that goes. Uh, Suns led by as many as 32 points. Uh, the bench players cut the deficit a little bit in the fourth. Um, yeah, tough loss for them, for the, uh, the Lakers, for the Phoenix Suns. Bradley Beal had a season-high 37 points and eight three-pointers. Um, and the trio, the newly formed trio, Kevin Durant, Bradley Beal, and Devin Booker, uh, combined for, I believe, 80... Let's see. I got to now do this quick mental math. 86 points? Uh, yeah. that It's something like that. 80-something. 80 86, I believe. That's the most they've, com they've combined for so far uh, in the short history of their their trio. Booker had 31 in the game. Durant with 
uh, 18. He was actually the third leading scorer of those guys. And uh, LeBron, 10 points, uh, kept the streak alive of double-digit scoring games, just barely. Um, no one over 20 points or over 19 points, actually, for the Lakers. Um, again, that'll be a talking point. Um, tough loss for them when you only get 10 points, 9 assists from LeBron, and Anthony Davis only has 13 points. Uh, that's going to be a big factor in not being even a close game, let alone winning the game. But that'll be a conversation for the future. Um, we'll be talking about the Lakers probably a lot more over the next couple of weeks, uh, regardless if they keep losing or if they start to win more. Um, the continual losses or the quick turnaround, those are both going to be talking points um, over the next few weeks, regardless of which happens. But with that, that takes care of uh, our six men. And let's go ahead and jump into our key news to wrap up our first main big segment of the show. Um, and we'll start with some transactional notes. Uh, the main roster move, uh, the Memphis Grizzlies waived center Bismack Biombo. That was actually a Wednesday transaction tied to the conversion of Vince Williams' contract uh, to a standard contract. So they... They have the 15-man roster. They have now only two guys on two-way deals, so look for them to sign some sort of other player to a two-way deal, likely a center uh, or power forward, but we'll have to see what they decide to do with that. And then some updates on a few different teams' disabled player exceptions. For the New York Knicks, the NBA denied the Knicks' application for a $7.8 million disabled player exception for the loss of Mitchell Robinson. And it's interesting. I feel like with either the Knicks or the next team, when I mentioned they had applied for that exception, I said, we'll see if they get it. It seems like most of the time they do. Uh, at that time, I couldn't remember a time they'd been, a team had been denied. Well, here's the time. Uh, but the reason is um, there's optimism that Mitchell Robinson can return before the end of the season, um, especially with the Knicks looking to have a good chance to make the playoffs um, that would extend that timeline. So bright spot for the Knicks that they could get him back, especially where Hartenstein has played well for them in uh, in relief of Robinson. So we'll have to see what happens there. Uh, for the San Antonio Spurs, though, the NBA did grant their exception, a $1.3 million uh, player exception for the loss, season-ending loss uh, of Charles Bassey. So they've got that exception. Uh, they have, I think it's until March to use it. And then for the Memphis Grizzlies, they've applied for a $12.4 million disabled player exception for the season-ending loss of John ja Morant. So definitely a sizable exception. We'll see um, if that's approved uh, in probably the next uh, couple of weeks or so. Speaking of the Grizzlies, a quick injury update. Uh, the mark for Marcus Smart, he had just recently got back from an injury of some sort uh, within the last few weeks, but now he's out again. He's out at least six weeks with a right finger injury. That's definitely tough news. Uh, we're going to wish him the best as he works to recover from that. Hopefully he's back on the floor sooner rather than later. Um, but then some positive news for the Charlotte Hornets. Uh, Lamella Ball is expected to potentially return tonight versus the San Antonio Spurs. Um, and a side note, as he returns uh, either tonight or in the coming games, he won't be required to cover up the, uh, quote, LF tattoo that's based on his LaFrance brand. Um, it's, of course, his middle name. Early on, the NBA was going to require him to cover that due to their uh, policy with brands, uh, you know, 
showcasing brands that don't have partnerships with the NBA, all that kind of stuff. Um, but reportedly you won't have to cover that um, going into uh, his return from uh, the injury. For the Toronto Raptors, I got to make a quick note here before I mention this news item. I apologize for Wednesday's show when covering the Lakers' narrow win at home to the Toronto Raptors for not actually digging just a touch more deeply into the stats and realizing what the real story there was. Narrow Lakers win, but a massive uh, gulf in the free throw shooting of the two teams, the Lakers shooting uh, far more free throws than the Raptors. In the fourth quarter, the Raptors with like two free throws and the Lakers with 20-something. Definitely a disparity. Anthony Davis, I think, shot a lot of free throws in particular. We mentioned, of course, he had some clutch free throw shooting. Again, should have looked a little more deeply to realize, wow, he shot a lot of free throws, um, and that's why that was a conversation point. Um, following the game, though, of course, coaches and, and NBA personnel in, in general know that complaining about officiating is going to bring a fine. Uh, many will get past the point of caring and will go for it anyways. And that was certainly the case for head coach uh, of the Toronto Raptors, Darko Radjakovic. Um, And he did not hold back. My goodness. I will admit that going into the season, he's, of course, the Raptors' first-year head coach. He's been a longtime assistant. I did not know a lot about his experience, either you know playing career or coaching career, or about him in general. After hearing the soundbite, He's one of my favorite coaches now. I mean, you got to love his, A, his passion, B, his his willingness to just go for it and, and you know, not care about the fine and, and speak his mind and, and speak up for his team and see, yeah, speaking up for the team and he loves his team. He will, you know, go to battle for his team and Scotty Barnes in particular, who according to him, uh, to head coach Radjakovic, Scotty Barnes is going to be the face of the league in the future. And some fans may say that's a bit of a stretch. And maybe that's a pretty bold take, but Barnes has been good. I, to me, I think he's an all-star caliber player this season. Um, despite the Raptors not being a, a stellar team, they're not a, a terrible team. Uh, they haven't been winning uh, a ton of games. But anyways, stellar rant. If you haven't heard it, I recommend uh listening into that finding it on on youtube um phenomenal stuff my my favorite quote perhaps this is a complete crap gotta love it um but again the news item here now that we've got that updated um he was fined twenty five thousand dollars for criticizing the officiating following that tuesday loss so not a surprise um but he definitely got his money's worth I'll tell you that much. Um, talking again, uh, talking again about the Charlotte Hornets. Uh, reportedly, the 2024 and 2025 off seasons for the Hornets will bring renovations and upgrades to the Spectrum Center, and also apparently there's a new practice facility in the works for them. So, of course, they recently brought in new majority uh, ownership after uh, Michael Jordan's sale of the team, and that ownership wants to upgrade their facilities. So uh, props to them. I saw some uh, brief mock-ups. Looks like they're going to have, you know, um, in between your upper and lower uh, levels or upper and lower bowls, you're going to have 
some uh, pavilion things and, you know, what a lot of the the newer fancy arenas or, or renovations are doing. So that'll be interesting to watch out for. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll see what comes to that. Again, it's going to be this off season and the next off season that they'll be making those uh, renovations. Should be interesting to see. Um, then we have a slew of NBA specific updates to talk about. Firstly, uh, the NBA announced the results of their load management study. Of course, that was a hot topic last season and a little bit this season with the player participation policy. Uh, apparently their finding from that was that there wasn't a, uh, a really a connection, uh, certainly not a strong correlation between load management and decreased injury risk. Um, from what they found resting players more, um, didn't necessarily lead to less injuries. And it was also worth noting the statistic that of how much, uh, players resting and star players resting, uh, has increased. And I think it was all-star caliber players um, that was the, you know, what to, who qualified as a star player, players that made all-star teams and how many games they missed in a season. Um, in somewhere in the 90s, it was uh, 10 games per season. And within the last few years, that's jumped up to like 23 games a season. Definitely a sizable jump. But now with this load management study announced, and again, the, um, and the new player participation policy, we'll have to see if that starts to go down and what impact that has on injuries. Um, definitely has not been a uh, year without injuries. Um, we've had John Morant return and get from suspension and get injured season ending. Mitchell Robinson, um, not quite that star level. Um, Marcus Smart's been out a few times. Um Bradley Beal missed a lot of the early season. So there's been injuries for sure. Um, but again, this will probably be a multi-season thing to really see what the uh, the pros and cons of it are uh, a little more long-term. Um, another announcement from the NBA, um, the second voting returns for All-Star voting were announced. Let me go ahead and pull that up. I believe it's the same leaders across the board. Uh, LeBron and Giannis, your leaders in the East and or the West and the East, respectively. Giannis, your overall leader. Uh, Luca, your leader of West guards. Tyrese Halliburton, your leader of East guards. I don't think there's a ton of new names, if any. I think maybe Demar Derozan might be a new name for the guards in uh, in the East, uh, but he might have been there before. Clay Thompson's in the in the West voting now. Um, Victor Wembanyama and Chet Holmgren are still in there. Uh, for the front court in the West. Um, and that's about it. A lot of these names we've still been seeing. Uh, we saw them in the last voting returns. Not, not really a big surprise. Uh, certainly keep voting. If you got your NBA, NBA ID, um, you can keep voting. There's many days where they have, you know, your vote counts for double or triple. Um, and uh, the fan vote counts for half of the, uh, uh, you know, 50% of the determination for the all-star starters. Um, so you can have a, a real impact on who is a starter this season. Uh, so definitely feel free to vote there. I, I could be voting a little bit more myself, but uh, that being said, last couple of notes, the NBA is finalizing plans for the Los Angeles Clippers to host 2026 all-star weekend at their new Intuit dome uh, that they are currently constructing 
And that is actually nearing a opening in 2024. And actually, I got to pull up the picture. It's close. I, I didn't realize uh, how quickly time had passed on that endeavor. Um, looking at pictures now, the outside structure of the arena is really uh, taking its shape. It's got kind of a scaly look to it. And it's also funny noting how close this arena is to the recently built SoFi Stadium for the NFL's Los Angeles Rams and Los Angeles Chargers. I mean, it's like a couple blocks away. It's right there. And the dome looks cool on mock-ups. I imagine it's going to have all the high-tech, you know, giant screens um, in at center court um, or, you know, jumbotrons. It's going to have the pavilion type things like we were talking about with the Hornets doing for their, um, their renovations. It'll have probably, you know, team store and all of those extra things. Um, it looks like it's going to be quite the arena. Um, I'm interested to see it, how it all turns out, but, uh, reportedly that's going to be your site of 2026 all-star weekend. Um, and finally the NBA reportedly is preparing to move to a two day draft format for the upcoming 2024 NBA draft. And it was a talking point, um, during the draft uh, festivities, this last off season due to, um, that back half of the night dragging for some people who don't have the, you know, that aren't that focused. They just want to see the big names get drafted, um, see maybe some of the feel good stories, and then they kind of tune out. So they have that second day for the diehard fans. Maybe it'd be more of an NBA TV type broadcast. Um, diehard fans tune in. They can see all those other names get drafted. They could get maybe get a little more in-depth analysis. Um, that would be kind of nice to see. Um, but let's see what happens. And, uh, and that being said, that's it for our key news. Again, a lot more news items than I originally uh, thought would be there but there was some updates that that came out that's like well i gotta add that gotta add that so um a more lengthy news segment and uh game summary segment but we're done with that and with that we're going to shift into our main focus for our friday episode as is the case and that is our franchise focus for we were talking about the celtics and the lakers and as far as legendary franchises And we're talking about those Los Angeles Lakers on today's Franchise Focus. Franchise Focus. And you're certainly at no shortage of storylines, players, teams, championships to talk about with the Lakers. Tied with the Celtics, of course, for 17 championships in their franchise's history, 63 playoff appearances. They have an uh, overall record of 591, uh, or overall winning percentage, rather, 591, 59% of their games. They've won stellar mark. Um, of course, they started in Minneapolis, for those who didn't know. That's where they got the Lakers name. And we'll talk about the Minneapolis stuff in a little bit. But, of course, we start... Uh, the first of our three parts of franchise focus is the uh, current team, the recent years, and the outlook going forward. And recent years, uh, interesting. Of course, it was just uh, about four seasons ago, the 2020 season, the 
COVID season in the Orlando bubble that the Los Angeles Lakers won an NBA championship uh, in 2020. And there's various conversations around that. Um, you know, you can think it was a harder championship, an easier championship. It was the same. Uh, there's a lot of debate about that, but it, it was a championship. Um, and that's really all you can say about it. Uh, that's, that's what the record will show despite of despite what you think. Uh, and so LeBron got his championship in LA, his second season there, AD's first ever championship, his first season there. Since then, it's been um, a series of, you know, momentum swings in big fashion uh, across months and across seasons. Uh, the 2021 season, they were overall uh, fairly good. 42 wins, 30 losses in an abbreviated season. Um, they made some you know, big trade deadline moves, as is kind of the expectation in recent seasons. Um, and then they lost in the first round to a, a Suns team that was red hot that made it to the finals. So um, tough to lose in the first round, but when you're losing to the finals participant, Sons, I mean, that's not too big, you know, that lessens the burden a little bit. The following year was where things were really a big, um, not quite circus, but there was a lot of negative attention around the Lakers. They won only 40% of their games. They had fans openly booing the team at home. Um, moments where the players didn't seem to be that engaged. Um, they... Frank Vogel, despite his best efforts, seemed to have lost the team for whatever reason, despite winning a championship with them two seasons prior. And so, of course, he was like, go. They bring in Darvin Ham. Last season, they start off really rough, but then they continue to pick up momentum, and suddenly uh, they won 52% of their games, and they had a... Cinderella playoff round of sorts to make it to the conference finals against the Nuggets swept in the conference finals, but still a very encouraging season uh, from LeBron and AD LeBron continue, continue to show his agelessness. Uh, Austin Reeves emerged as a nice piece for them. And now this season, suddenly they're 19 and 20 as of recording this below 500 by a game. And they had an off season this last year this last summer that we thought was going to set them up to at least match what they did last season in terms of being in contention to make the conference finals. They added guys like Torian Prince, who we know could be a solid starter and could knock down three pointers and could, you know, fit in with a team concept, hustle for boards, those type of things. They, you know, had D'Angelo Russell for a full season this time around uh, as a potential combo guard of sorts with his, scoring ability and assists, you know, playing alongside LeBron and AD. Austin Reeves, you know, off of a, a Team USA summer, had some potential to to impact the team in a big way. Um, they added Gabe Vincent from the Miami Heat, who had been a, uh, a huge success for the Heat's development system as, again, sort of a combo guard, a little bit of a smaller guard compared to Russell. Uh, Cam Reddish as a scoring wing, still a younger player. Uh, Rui Hachimura there for the full season again. Uh, Christian Wood added as well, a versatile big man off the bench. Jared Vanderbilt 
for now a full season. There was plenty of names that you thought they could be effective. Jackson Hayes from the the Pelicans. He got uh, Max Christie, who would be in his uh, second or third year, continuing to develop uh, as a, a guard off the bench. You know, there's plenty of pieces here to work with, but they haven't gelled particularly well for whatever reason. Um, there's been injuries to consider. Um, of course, Gabe Vincent Smith's most of the year. Uh, Roy Hachimura has been out for a little bit. Christian Wood has been uh, in and out lately. Um, so, so those are some factors. But more to the point, something to consider, and um, it's been a talking point in recent seasons. It's been continually disproven. Uh, so now we're hesitant to talk about it. But, you know, maybe LeBron is starting to show just a shade of slowing down. And he's still very effective. We're talking about 25 points a game, seven boards, seven assists, uh, 1.4 steals um, on fairly solid percentages. I mean, 39% from three is very good for LeBron, and 73% from the free throw line is pretty decent for him as well. Um, But you compare it to last season when he averaged 29 points a game, eight rebounds, seven assists, and uh, he was, you know, taking – control of games especially in the playoffs um we saw that from lebron and the scoring has taken a step back ad is leading the team in scoring and it's that shift that we he has talked about in interviews from time to time of it being you know ad is going to be the focus player and lebron's going to support him as a co-star and that i think is probably going to need to be the shift uh for the lakers to um, extend their success and to not lose their success with the aging of LeBron. Now, again, LeBron still has, uh, I would say, a few more seasons of above average play at the very least, if not, you know, certainly all star level and all star starter level. I mean, he's still phenomenal, but it's starting to happen just a little bit. And the same thing happened in the NFL with with Tom Brady. You know, Brady continue to defy the odds with the age conversation until the media was afraid to talk about it. And then suddenly his play fell off in his final season and, you know, game by game, it was, well, you know, he, he still is Brady and he can do these things. And then suddenly uh, it was the end of the season and it just didn't, didn't happen for him. The flip was the switch was not flipped uh, in a sense. And LeBron can still, you know, control games. We saw it with the in-season tournament. They had that great run and won the in-season tournament. So that's already something to hang your hat on for this Lakers team. But if you're talking contention, which they still very much want to do, um, AD's got to be the focus and LeBron, the the supporting co-star who's going to get everyone else involved and, and score some himself, you know. And that will make the transition easier once LeBron is no longer with the team in whatever amount of time it is, a year or three years or five years or whatever it is, then it's AD's team who will still have uh, a good amount of time to play. I mean, he's, um, how old is he at this point? 30. So even if LeBron plays three more years, that would still give you uh, the tail end of AD's prime. It would still give you some very productive years with him. Um, and that would give you, 
you know, maybe you make a trade for some sort of other star. It definitely would not be surprising for the Lakers to do that, to pair with AD and continue to chase championships. And that is the expectation with the Lakers. They want to be contending for championships every single season, um, whether it's realistically sustainable. Um, you know, you've got to have a heck of a front office and their front office has been, uh, showing some some good signs in recent seasons with some of the moves they've been able to make. Um, and they've started to a little bit every year get a little bit better about uh, making sure they still have a future to work with despite the moves they make. But um, I don't know. As far as this season, I don't see a reason to really count the Lakers out yet. I mean, um, they're going to need to really ramp things up in the second half of the season. Um, to ensure they get a good playoff uh, position. You know, I think that was part of their downfall in the conference finals. They had to, you know, really buckle down so intensely for the last couple of weeks of the regular season and the play in game. And then, you know, the first round and second round, it was such a struggle with, you know, not a home court advantage with having, you know, such a intense, desire to win at that point compared to a more steady progression that by the time they got to the conference finals, LeBron was really hampered by injury. Um, AD was not playing the same. It was just kind of like the run was spent at a certain point. It felt like it kind of had to stop. Um, but if they want it to be more sustainable, they've got to really string together wins. They've got to, you know, win like 60, 65% of their games, at least I would think, over the last half of the season to secure a decent playoff type spot to then be able to, you know, have a, a steady progression, getting a little bit better every game and every series throughout the playoffs versus just being at full tilt um, survival mode from the beginning, you know, and that's my just kind of loose thoughts, I suppose. Um, on what would happen. But again, I, I think they've got plenty of talent. I think some of these guys, you know, we've seen Russell pick things up. D'Angelo Russell, I think he can play better. I think the Reeves off the bench this season so far has been interesting, but they could find that success with him starting potentially. Um, but again, I'm not the coach and don't have that level of insight as to which was actually the better fit uh, game to game, year to year. And um, there's always the trade deadline X factor with a LeBron team and with this Lakers team. Um, they make a move at the trade deadline and suddenly they've got all this new energy and it's a new team and they make a move. So we'll see what happens. But definitely if, as a Lakers fan, no need to count the team out yet. We've seen far worse seasons in recent memory from the Lakers and you still have two of the great players of all time, especially one of the greatest in LeBron James, the leading scorer, who, by the way, is approaching 40,000 career points, something that no one has ever done. Um, so you're still in a good spot. You know, you've got um, a possibility for still a lot of great years for, you know, five or six years or even more, you know. You keep it managed well, the Lakers can expect to continue to be stout. Um and that's it for the current team. As far as the historic team, I really wanted to, I mentioned we talk about the Minneapolis years. Um, that's where this started. You know, it gets forgotten in the fact that the Los Angeles teams 
were it was all about in the 60s Elgin Baylor and Jerry West and always in the finals or most of the time in the finals couldn't get over the hump and then finally with Wilt Chamberlain in the 70s they got over the hump they got their first championship in Los Angeles after dominant years in Minneapolis and then it was showtime and they won multiple championships then it was Kobe and Shaq winning championships and then just Kobe and Pau Gasol and then even the recent years with LeBron it's been an expectation for championship contention for winning and that started with the Minneapolis years they were in Minneapolis for 12 their first 12 seasons uh the first of those being in the old basketball association of America that of course became um what we now know as the NBA with a merger with the NBL in the, in 1949. Um, but <clears throat> the Lakers from that point, their first season in the BAA, they won a championship in 1949. Um, and the following season, the 1950 season, that's the team I want to talk about. And I'm going to do my best to talk about them because there's not a ton to work with as far as, you know, current knowledge of players' play styles. These are not guys that get talked about in the same way as, you know, the players that would fall soon after. Wilt Chamberlain, Elgin Baylor, as we talked about, Jerry West, Oscar Robertson, Bill Russell. The names of the very late 50s and throughout the 60s, they're still, you know, a long time ago, but those are names much more well-known. People know George Mikan, um, and they know uh, that the Lakers were good in the 50s. They know Bob Pettit. They know some of those 50s names, but it's certainly not to the same degree. And especially when you look at the stats um, as a, a modern-day fan, looking at it through our uh, the current stats lens, it's like, okay, well, you had your second-leading scorer on this team averaging 14.7 points per game. Wow, boring basketball. And it's like, yeah, it was a different game. The game was still uh, developing in many ways. Players were still learning how to shoot most effectively. There was This was an era of set shots, of, you know, offenses that were um, perhaps uninspired, if you want to be uh, a little bit more harsh. But I think it's worth taking into consideration pace of play. I mean, this is a time in the NBA where teams are averaging around 80 points per game uh, scoring. Whereas nowadays they're averaging, I want to say closer to 110, something in that range. And of course, nowadays they're at some of the highest pace we've seen in recent years. Yeah. Around 110 points per game or even more. Um, So that is worth considering and it's not a direct correlation, but if you use that as a rough comparison, uh, that pace adjusted to these stats that makes George Mikan all the more impressive. And it's also hard to talk about this team because the only stats tracked that we have for these teams and these players, we have points, we have assists, we have fouls, and we have their shooting percentages from the floor and from the free throw line. And that's it. Of course, no three point line, but they didn't track rebounds. They didn't track steals or blocks in the very early fifties, but we know Mike and probably would have been grabbing 10, 15 rebounds a game um, because he was such a dominant center in his era. He was the original star player 
uh, let alone star center. 6'10", 245 in an era where your centers were probably averaging more around 6'6", uh, maybe 6'7". So you have a guy that big in that era. He was truly dominant. Um, of course, the Mike and Drill, well-known, uh, being able to to hit hook shots and, and layups, left hand, right hand. Um, he was a a great scorer of his era with the Lakers averaging uh, about 23 points per game. And especially his first uh, three years with the Lakers in the NBA, he averaged uh, around 28 points per game, uh, 27 points per game in this 1950 season. Um, a quick note on George Mikan, he actually had a lot of his best years in um, the NBL with teams like the Chicago American Gears um, and others. But that's another story for another time, perhaps. Um, but yeah, Mikan was dominant. And again, 27 points per game in a year where they're averaging like 80 points per game. Should we try and do some rough math here on that? Uh, let's try and do that. Why not? If we divide 80 by 110, um, well, actually, no, 110 divided by 80 would give us the number to multiply 27 points by. That's like 37 points a game. And again, that's not an exact science by any means, but this is a guy pace-wise averaging something like 30 points a game in his time. He was one of the the league's best players. Um, And then... He was joined by two all-stars, especially in an era with without a lot of great scorers. He has uh, a small forward and a power forward playing alongside him that are maybe uh, two of the best at those positions in the league at that time. Uh, Vernon Mickelson is who we'll start with. Um, and he was in his rookie year this year. He would go on to be a much more dominant forward. Um, the following season actually is the first year they tracked rebounds, uh, but he would average about eight or nine rebounds a game and uh, closer to uh, 16, 17 points per game in a lot of years. And again, you compare that more to today's type of stats. That's like, you know, 20 something points and 12 or 13 rebounds a game. So he was very, very good. One of the top power forwards of his era. And then Jim Pollard is playing alongside them who averaged about 14.7 points per game, um, one of his higher scoring years. So they had, you know, think about it like this. Think if in today's NBA, the Philadelphia 76ers had Joel Embiid at center. Then they had um, Pascal Siakam at power forward. And then they had, a guy like maybe Mikhail Bridges or Scotty Barnes or someone like that at small forward. And then you're talking about one of the best, maybe the best front court full stop in the NBA. And that's kind of what the Lakers had. I mean, these three guys were dominant and that's a big, big part of why we're talking about them. I will admit you go outside of that and the names are not glamorous. Arnie Farron, Herm Schaefer, Don Carlson, Bob Harrison. There are names worth noting, though. Slater Martin uh, was, I believe, yeah, he was a rookie this year as well. He would go on to be one of the best point guards of the 50s, um, especially more of a scoring guard, but he would distribute as well um, for his era, was one of the best distributors for sure. 
And then they also had a guy by the name of Bud Grant. And this is a great factoid, a guy uh, who played basketball as well as football, who would then go on to coach football in the NFL and coach the Minnesota Vikings to four Super Bowl appearances. One of the great two sport athletes in American sports, certainly. So they've got him as a reserve player, you know, winning a championship with them. Um, it was a dominant team. This is an era in which the league had how many teams was it this year? Um, 17 teams the following year that would get sliced in a big chunk down to 11. Um, the league was not on super stable ground. You know, the whole playing against plumbers and firemen line gets used a lot. And it's technically true because, you know, how much were you getting paid to play in the NBA at this point? A few thousand bucks on the side, um, if that, um, especially in the early 50s, maybe a few hundred. And so they, it was not your full-time job. You worked, you know, as a fireman or a salesman or something to that effect. Um Anyways, that's besides the point I was going to make. Um, yeah, they were just dominant. They swept uh, a first-place tiebreaker with the Royals uh, to see who got first place in the Central Division. Uh, then they won in the semifinals versus the Chicago Stags, then the finals versus the Pistons, then the semifinals, uh, the NBA semifinals mm-hmm. versus the Anderson Packers. 2-0, 2-0, and 2-0, uh, best of three series, swept all of those. Um, Chicago Stags, of course, no longer in the NBA. Anderson Packers, no longer in the NBA. Fort Wayne Pistons are, yes, the predecessors of our Detroit Pistons. And the Rochester Royals, we know today as the Sacramento Kings. And then they go on to play the Syracuse Nationals in the NBA Finals, and they win that series 4-2. That Nationals team, of course, later became the Philadelphia 76ers. And that was maybe their the next best team outside of well yeah the next best team in the NBA uh, with Dolph Shays at uh, power forward uh, and center at that time and then uh, Al Servi and uh, Bill Gabor were the other leaders of that team in terms of scoring at least um, so <clears throat> anyways. But the point I'm trying to make more importantly, um, dominant front court. And I think we should definitely be m- noting more and the Lakers have done it more in recent years with throwbacks, but the franchise started in Minneapolis. That's why they're called the Lakers. They had dominant teams in Minneapolis. It was, you know, Russell Celtics before Russell Celtics. It was Mikan's Lakers. They won, um, five championships in their first six seasons. That's never going to be done by a team in their first six seasons in a league ever again. Uh, I can guarantee that they of course have a record. They've won their first, they won two championships in their first two seasons. Again, that'll never be broken. Just phenomenal teams. Uh, John Kundla was the head coach. He deserves a lot of credit for being probably the NBA's first great head coach. Um, in this kind of an era, there was a lot of player coaches. Um, because if you're, you know, your players aren't making that much money, you can only imagine how much coaches are making. Um, but 
Mikan was, you know, the greatest player of the early 50s. The Lakers were the NBA's first great dynasty, and it was all in Minneapolis. And I think it's worth noting that for our franchise focus. Um, and so that's our historic team. We've rambled there, and we're probably going to ramble about our, our final bit here, our franchise legend or notable player. Um, we got to talk about the logo. Um, after Mike and the next great Laker, uh, perhaps, and that is Jerry West, the logo uh, out of West Virginia. And really the big point I want to get across here with Jerry West is this is a guy that just won at everything he did um, as an adult and as a professional, despite his upbringing. I mean, he overcame tremendous odds to do the things that he has done in life, um, especially as a player, but also as an executive. Um, of course, he's from West Virginia. He was born into a poor home, um, working class family, uh, lower, you know, low class, uh, just not a lot of money. Uh, his father was abusive. Um, there's a quote here from Wikipedia that is just heartbreaking from, you have to imagine this. Growing up in a you know small town, West Virginia, poor household, uh, fifth of six children, uh, and an abusive parent, West stated that for a time he slept with a loaded shotgun under his bed out of fear that he might have to kill his father in self-defense, which is unthinkable to have that type of a uh, an upbringing to, to have to deal with. And again, talking about long shot odds to overcome that type of childhood um, to, to add on to that uh, quote, West was an outgoing and aggressive child in his youth. However, in 1951, his older brother, David was killed in action in the Korean war and the trauma turned West into a shy and introverted boy um, to add on to that. He uh, struggled with um, maybe in a small sense, malnutrition, but he was just small. He was a, uh, uh, a thin kid. He was a bit weak. Uh, he got vitamin injections. Uh, he was kind of shunned, not shunned, but he was kept away from sports for fear of, you know, he's not going to be able to take that physical type of toll. But, um, you know, he, he did love basketball. Of course, he enjoyed hunting and fishing uh, as, you know, many do in that uh, beautiful natural uh scene of of west virginia especially but um his main thing that he loved was was shooting hoops his neighbor had a uh basket nailed to a shed very hoosiers-esque but of course it's west virginia instead of indiana um, but he would uh just shoot for hours on end no matter the weather and uh even though his mom would would give him whippings if he was hours late for dinner uh he would still just spend his time shooting the basketball. He loved to shoot. And uh, eventually he grew into uh, a sizable body, a six foot frame in high school. Uh, after in his early high school years, as his freshman year, he, he wasn't given an opportunity to play because he wasn't in good shape. He wasn't fit enough. Um, his coach emphasized conditioning and defense. And, you know, Jerry West, he took that seriously. He wanted to play. And eventually, by the time he's a senior, he's he's a sizable player. He's got a healthy body. Uh, he becomes the captain 
he was a small forward for their team. Um, and he was a high scoring player. And that's going to be a recurring theme. Average 32 points a game in high school. Uh, his mid range shot was his trademark. Um, he led them his school East bank to a state championship um, in uh, what year was this? 1956 was the year. Um, because of that and what he meant to the school and that championship, uh, East bank, uh, held a thing so quote east bank high school uh would change its name to west bank high school every year on march 24th which was the date they won the state championship in honor of uh, jerry west this happened uh every year until the school closed in 1999 uh kind of a sad note there but cool that they were able to recognize him in that way so tremendous high school career again against the odds so now he has opportunity uh, to play at a ton of universities, 60 universities uh, expressed interest wanted to bring him on to their teams. But he decided to stay home. He went to West Virginia uh, to play uh, in Morgantown, West Virginia for the Mountaineers. And um, he played with uh, some pretty dominant teams and dominant uh, teammates. Jay Jacobs and Fred Schaus were worth noting there. Um he had a ton of accolades and we'll, we'll gloss here because um, we don't want to get bogged down with the details, but he was highly decorated um, in the collegiate game, um, high scoring, uh, grabbing a lot of rebounds as well. Um, especially as a junior and a senior, um, his final collegiate season West uh Scored 29.3 points per game, 16.5 rebounds per game grabbed. So that's pretty phenomenal. Um, also worth noting his junior year, um, he led West Virginia to the final against California. They lost that game 71 to 70. West was named the most outstanding player of that final four, despite losing the tournament. And that's worth noting because that's going to have a parallel in about 12 years. Um, so anyways, storied collegiate career, phenomenal. He's going to be a high draft pick. Uh, 1960 draft, seven or, second overall pick by the Minneapolis Lakers. Um, right before the team moved to Los Angeles, uh, he was the first ever draft pick of the Los Angeles Lakers in that sense. Um, and his college coach, who was... Um, Let's see, who, who was his college coach? This is going to be a bad look. No, Fred Schaus was the coach. See, I thought that, because I, of course, knew that Fred Schaus coached the Lakers during that time. That's why I got mixed up on the name there. Okay, sorry. Jay Jacobs was one of the players. Willie Akers was another player, but Fred Schaus was the coach. So then Fred Schaus became the head coach of the Lakers. And all he did in his Lakers career was compete for championships and score points um, along with a lot of other great play. He was great two way. And again, he was the inspiration for the logo, but that tandem Jerry West and Elgin Baylor uh, is phenomenal. I, you know, it's hard to think of more statistically impressive duos than Jerry West and Elgin Baylor. I'm curious to take actually, you know, what was their highest scoring combined season? That would be interesting to see. 
would it be 1962, perhaps? I think it might be. In 1962, Elgin Baylor averaged 38 points a game and 18 rebounds per game. And Jerry West averaged 30 points per game and eight rebounds along with five assists. My goodness. That is impressive. The stats these two put up were incredible. And they played with a decent supporting cast, too. It was not just them. They had um, Rudy LaRusso, who was an all-star. They had Hot Rod Hunley, who was a highly touted player. Uh, Frank Selvi, Bobby Leonard, or Slick Leonard, as he might be known. Um, They had decent centers. They had great teams. But West and Baylor especially led them to contention. And... um, I mean, they were they were just a great team. I mean, from let's see, let's find this here. I'm kind of bouncing around a little bit all over the place to find these uh, to find these stats, but I got to make sure I paint you the full picture here. From Jerry West's rookie year up through um, what would have been his last season. 1974 they made the playoffs every year they went to the nba finals nine times um they lost in the conference finals uh or the equivalent of the conference finals a couple of times um they were just right there to win a championship or they were close to winning a championship most years and it's a different era. I understand that, but it's still very impressive what these Lakers teams were able to do and the stats that Jerry West put up. One I wanted to focus on in particular, if I can make sure I found it from where I was looking at it before. Um, I mean, of course, the tail end of his career, the Lakers brought in Wilt Chamberlain to pair him uh, with Baylor and West. Baylor got hurt, but the Chamberlain addition alongside Jerry West was still enough to get them the championship in 1972. That 72 squad is still one of the great teams in NBA history, full stop. Uh, They went 69 and 13 at that time in NBA record. They were dominant. uh, One of the best teams ever still to this day. Um, And Gail Goodrich, a part of that as well. Um. I will note that um, we'll start with this. Following his playing career, he coached for the Lakers from 76 to 79 uh, for three seasons. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was on the team at that time. No Magic Johnson yet, but they made the playoffs every year. They got to the Western Conference Finals in 77. So he was a very good coach. Uh, Then he became an executive. Uh, He was firstly a scout with the Lakers for three years. And then he was the general manager of the Lakers uh, in 1982. He became the general manager. And from there, his second great career as an executive took off. He helped build uh, and maintain and and actually improve the dynasty that became the Showtime Lakers. Uh, They won, of course, the championship following his, you know, general manager, um, being named general manager in 82, they won in 85, 87, and 88. Um, brought, you know, made Pat Riley the head coach. They had Magic, they had Cream, they had great draft picks. Um, after they 
lost that and they struggled for a bit in the 90s, brought in a new coach, brought in new great players, and then orchestrated Kobe Bryant and Shaq. Made that happen. And uh, he left uh, at the end of that first championship in the 2000 season. Um, But, you know, he was the guy who put together the team that won three straight. So that was phenomenal. Then he moves on to Memphis and the Grizzlies in 2002 to become their general manager. He leads them to have a great turnaround. Hubie Brown is coach of the year. Um, They have their first playoff appearance from a team that the Vancouver Grizzlies, when they were the Vancouver Grizzlies in the nineties, they were abysmal and they were not great where they first moved to Memphis. But then Jerry West goes there, changes the culture. He takes a break for a few years. He goes to golden state and the warriors in 2011. And he was not a general manager there. He was an executive board member reporting to Joe Lacob, Peter Goober. Um, but wouldn't you know it, uh, while there, he was able to help orchestrate, in some small part, uh, the dynasty of the Warriors, uh, at least the very beginnings of it. And then since 2017, he's been part of the Los Angeles Clippers. Um, and he's been, you know, an orchestrator of bringing in Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, and making sure they are a contending team to this day. Again, that's where I'm talking about everything he's done has been phenomenal. He's impacted the Lakers as an executive as well. But of course he, his first impact is as a player and how dominant he was as a player. Um, I've got to find this stat that I was going to read for you as far as his incredible uh, scoring averages that he had in a particular playoff year and I'm really kicking myself for not making a better note of this um I mean in the 1965 playoffs he averaged 40.6 points per game um but that I believe wasn't even the the highest he had averaged well and I could find it easier this way no that was 40 points per game in the playoffs is unreal. Um, And that was outscoring even Elgin Baylor, who was usually a slightly higher scoring player. That was the stat I wanted to point out. Um, Kind of ruined the reveal, but still. It's hard to overrate what he did as a player. And I'll, I'll close it off with, I mentioned in the... Um, when we were talking about his college career, he won the final four as the most outstanding player, despite not winning the championship and history would kind of repeat itself in 71. No. 69, the 69 finals. Uh, the Lakers lost that finals. It was the Celtics last championship. They won with Bill Russell. It was the first year of the finals, most valuable player award. There was not the same ideas of that award as there are now, such as not giving the award to a member of the losing team. But Jerry West was so great in that playoff series that he won the most valuable player despite playing for 
the losing team. And let's look at some stats from the series just to see how great he was. Game one of the 69 finals, Jerry West has 53 points and 10 assists as the Lakers narrowly win. Next game, the Lakers win again. West has 41 points, eight assists to power the Lakers to a 2-0 lead in the series. Game three, back in Boston, the Celtics win despite Jerry West, uh, well, 24 points, six assists. An off game, but he still led the Lakers in scoring um, against a still very good Celtics defense at that time. Celtics tie up the series in game four, overcoming 40 points from Jerry West in game four. Game five, Lakers win at home to take the lead again, three to two. Jerry West, 39 points, nine assists. Then you go to game six. Boston wins at home to tie up the series again, three to three. Jerry West, 26 points, ties Elgin Baylor in that series. Finally, they go back to the the, uh, the Forum and Los Angeles for Game 7. The Celtics buck the trend and win in Los Angeles despite Jerry West's 42 points, 13 rebounds, and 12 assists, a triple-double in Game 7. My goodness. So he wins the most valuable player. And we hear the debate come up from time to time. You know, this player has been so good for the other team. Should they get the MVP despite being on the losing team? Should he be the next, the only other one besides Jerry West? If there's any playoffs or any finals where a player from the losing team is going to win it, it had to be that year because Jerry West was that good. And if any player deserved it, it's him because of how dominant he was. He in my mind, equal with Oscar Robertson, greatest guard, two greatest guards of the 1960s. No debate there. Um, And he's got to be a starter in the greatest Lakers of all time. Your Lakers starting five, Jerry West is there. And that's my closing thoughts on Jerry West as we wrap up this very much extended franchise focus as I got rambling, as I said, on Jerry West, but he gets underrated eternally. And I don't understand it because he, despite him being shy and not confident in himself, he had a bit of a higher pitched voice. Um, some players said he was a killer on the court and that's all you can say there. And so I'll leave it at that. I'll quit my rambling. And that is our franchise focus for one of the great franchises, the Los Angeles Lakers. And with that, let's go ahead and shift focus to a hopefully much, much briefer segment, our Fantasy Fridays segment. Okay, again, I got rambling a bit too much on that last segment. We're going to hopefully go through this a lot quicker. Just a quick check-in on my fantasy team. Um, I have not done a great job updating my lineups. I'm 4-7 and seven in our league at the moment, which is uh, tied for third worst record, which I think is where I was before. Um, as we mentioned, the guy who makes the most moves in our league is sitting atop the league but Wyatt is actually tied for second Um, meanwhile I'm tied with Justin for third worst team I have tried to make some trade proposals I've talked to you guys about this Um, 
my trade proposals have been uh, basically ignored, not even rejected. That's one thing, but they haven't even responded to my trade proposals. I gave one to uh, one of our better teams in the league that I thought was an okay one. Uh, I would give Michael Porter Jr. and Evan Mobley in exchange for Kyle Kuzma. And I know that Evan Mobley is injured, but that's where I give two players. He's day by day getting closer to return from injury and he's a valuable player still. So I don't know, maybe these are ludicrous, ludicrous trades and I shouldn't be surprised to not be getting trades, but that's where I sit with my team at the moment. Um, as far as quick thoughts on some movers this week, um, I'm going to start with Julius Randle as a riser. Uh, he's been scoring more over the last couple of weeks and a little bit more efficiently. Um, a lot of the other stats are kind of the same, you know, fluctuating better or worse. But I think it's a decent pick because of the OG on an OB trade um, with him being more of a defensively focused player that clears room for Brunson and Randle to be the leading scorers and not worried about a third leading score. So that's my pick for a riser there. A faller is going to be a controversial pick, and I don't mean to, you know, doubt his abilities. That's not at all what this pick is, and it's not even an indictment of him. It's more the direction of the team and how that will impact, you know, how how he plays for the rest of the season because, you know, as the team continues to struggle, more and more playoffs are going to fall out of focus. At least that seems like the trend. But Steph Curry is my pick for a faller just because the stats are going down um, less points, less rebounds. He's shooting a worse percentage from uh, from the three-point range. Um, so that's my reasoning. Um, again, he's one of our greatest players right now. And you can't deny that. But again, even they have struggles. And when he gets out of that slump, the Warriors, I think, are still going to be struggling as a whole. And that could influence how he plays the rest of the year and how the franchise, you know, handles him the rest of the year. Do they bother playing him? You know, what happens if you keep playing him and then suddenly he picks up an injury that you didn't need you didn't need to have? So I don't know. We'll see. He's my pick for that. And then finally, a sleeper. Despite the off-court issues over the last couple of years, I'm going to go with Miles Bridges. He's only been back for a little bit, but over the last couple of weeks, he started to pick up his play more, uh, more points per game, more assists, better percentage from the floor. And again, remember, Lamella Ball is nearing return from injury, and those two worked very well as a duo two seasons ago. So I think he could be in line for some some better statistical showings. Um, but those are my picks for some movers and shakers. And last thought, I mentioned I'd update you all on my fantasy football league, even though it's not really relevant. Um, I was in the championship. I unfortunately lost in the championship. Uh, my opponent had some, some great players have some great games. Um, but it was a nice run, and I'm looking forward to that next year as well as um, next year's fantasy basketball. But of course this year I got to focus on trying to get my team to uh, a winning record, but that is it for our fantasy Friday segment. We're going to hold off on the prediction check-in for just one more week so that the following week 
uh, we'll have a lot more to talk about, hopefully. And with that, we'll shift into our weekend forecast uh, to begin wrapping up the show. All of the times that I will give for these games are in Eastern Standard Time, so keep that in mind as you're planning your schedules. On Saturday, there's eight games total. One of them is the national broadcast on NBA TV at 8 o'clock. The Milwaukee Bucks host the Golden State Warriors. Um, that'll be an interesting game because, again, the Bucks have struggled in uh, recent weeks to an extent. The Warriors have struggled even more. Could be a bounce-back game for the Warriors or the Bucks. It'll be interesting to see what happens there. Uh, the remaining games... Uh, on Saturday's slate, we have at 7 o'clock, the Celtics will host the Houston Rockets. 7.30, the Washington Wizards are in Atlanta against the Hawks. The uh, At 8 o'clock, the Orlando Magic are in Oklahoma City against the Thunder. That's an intriguing one. Also at 8, the Grizzlies host the New York Knicks. At 8.30, the Spurs will host the Chicago Bulls. Also at 8.30, the Dallas Mavericks will host the New Orleans Pelicans. That's probably your best game uh, of the night, along with this other game at 9.30. The Utah Jazz host the Los Angeles Lakers. That's a local access game, either Utah Jazz, uh, or sorry, Jazz Plus, or on uh, KJazz on local Utah cable TV. Those final two games, Pels Mavs and Lakers Jazz, are very intriguing to say the least. On Sunday, we have five games, no national broadcasts. Uh, at 3.30, the Nuggets will host the Pacers uh, in Bruce Brown's return to Denver, I believe. Uh, at 6 o'clock, the Miami Heat will host the Charlotte Hornets. <clears throat> the Minnesota Timberwolves will host the LA Clippers at 7 o'clock. That's an intriguing one. Two hot teams in the Western Conference. Also at 7, the Sacramento Kings will be in Milwaukee against the Bucks. Sabonis versus Giannis. I would watch out for that one. And then finally at nine o'clock, the Portland Trailblazers host the Phoenix Suns. How do the Blazers bounce back? Uh, well, they might have played tonight too, but how do they bounce back after that showing against the Thunder in Oklahoma City? And finally on Monday, 11 games, a, uh, well, three national broadcasts actually. Firstly on NBA TV at one o'clock, the 76ers will host the Houston Rockets. Then uh, TNT doubleheader at 3.30, the Atlanta Hawks will host the San Antonio Spurs. And then at 6 o'clock, the Memphis Grizzlies will host the Golden State Warriors. Of course, of course, you have more national broadcasts and more games because of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So looking forward to being able to celebrate that and Dr. King's legacy. Um, your remaining games at 2.30, the Dallas Mavericks will host the New Orleans Pelicans again. So it's a back-to-back in Dallas for the Pelicans. At 3 o'clock, the Washington Wizards will host the Detroit Pistons, Detroit's next best opportunity to pick up their fourth win of the season versus a struggling Wizards squad that could soon become the second worst record-wise team in the NBA if the Spurs start winning a touch more. At 3 o'clock, the New York Knicks will host the Orlando Magic. At 7 o'clock, the Cleveland Cavaliers host the Chicago Bulls. At 7.30, the Boston Celtics are in Toronto against the Raptors. Also at 7.30, the Miami Heat are in Brooklyn against the Nets. And then finally at 9 o'clock, the Indiana Pacers are in Utah against the Jazz. Again, Jazz Plus or uh, K-Jazz on your local Utah uh, cable TV. So a lot of intriguing matchups. Each day has something to watch for. Um, excuse me. Again, as far as the game I'm most intrigued in, 
I would probably go with uh, Lakers Jazz, of course, for obvious you know, biased reasons. Outside of that, I would go with either of the Pelicans Mavericks games potentially because I'm intrigued by what New Orleans can do with a recent hot streak. If not, I'd say Clippers Timberwolves on Sunday. That should be a great game as well. But um, that's it for that segment. And we'll go ahead and wrap things up with our This Day in History fact. Uh, we're going back not very far, 2007. January 12th of 2007, Ray Allen scored a career best 54 points in a 122 to 114 Sonics win in overtime against the Jazz, much to my chagrin, I guess. Um, Allen shot 17 for 32 overall, went 8 for 12 on threes and made all 12 of his free throw attempts. Just love to note, we forget how exceptional Ray Allen was in his prime. Of course, with the Celtics, he was great as a third man. When he was the lead guy and you had these type of offensive nights with that efficiency, scary good. And uh, one of my, you know, favorites of the 2000s, Ray Allen, uh, loves to talk about him. But with that, we'll definitely sign off on a much longer than anticipated episode tonight. Thank you all for listening. And if you made it this far, uh, really appreciate it for uh, sticking around this long. Next week, of course, will be again our same Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule. And uh, we'll be back on Monday for a special Martin Luther King Jr. Day uh, episode. We'll recap uh, this weekend's action. We'll do our weekly MVP, weekly um, power rankings. Uh, and again, I have a special segment of DEFCON levels planned for that episode. But with that in mind, I'll sign off. Thanks again for listening. And we'll be back with you on that Monday episode. <laughs>